Hey now, we are getting over and I am the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, here to lead you through these hard times with your 2023 AEW Revolution Instant Analysis. That's right, getting over is here just minutes after AEW Revolution went off the air to break down every single bit from AEW's first pay-per-view of 2023. We're going to be breaking down the matches, giving you our commentary and reaction to those matches. We'll drop some grades and some ratings, and we will break down everything that we expect to happen with AEW into the near future. Vintage Chris Vanini is here to take the ride with me. He will be along momentarily as we kick off the show. I got to do what I always do here on Getting Over and remind you that this podcast is all about Defy. So be sure to head on over to Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Drop those five-star ratings. Take a little extra time. Leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, a written review, that is. Let everyone know how much you love the show. Tell them why you listen and subscribe, and perhaps mention our ultimate previews and instant analysis, which we do after every pay-per-view and premium live event. Also, do not forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast for episode drops, news analysis, highlights, and much more, including live pre-shows before pay-per-views and polls where you can give us your pre- and post-show grades, which you guys all did for AEW Revolution. We will discuss that at the end of the show. Now, before I welcome Chris in, we do have one more tradition here on the Instant Analysis Podcast only because it's usually late. We're usually a little tired. We want to perk ourselves up by cracking open a cold one. And the Silver King is rocking with Evening Glow from Swamp Head Brewing in Gainesville, Florida. Tonight, very excited. Not one of my favorite beers, but definitely a damn good one. Chris, welcome to the show. What do you got over there? I've got a uh, passion fruit cider from Austin East Ciders in Austin, Texas. Found it in my fridge. I think my wife got it, but it's pretty good, I got to say. So are you a cider seltzer guy over beer or is that just happens no, the way it's been my, what my my wife is and she tends to just get more stuff to drink than i do so a lot of it is just what she ends up having but i, I i'm not a big beer connoisseur so sure. to speak so i so i have no problem jumping into the ciders and the spritzers and whatnot no that makes sense i, I kind of forced you into the situation by just bringing it up one time early in the history of this show hey i'm gonna <laughs> pop a cold one if you want to join me and then all of a sudden it became a quick tradition, but I never actually asked you that question. So here we are three years and hundreds of episodes later, and I'm just finding that out right now. Now, we have a ton to break down from AEW Revolution. I should note before we get to that, if the Silver King sounds a little different, the final piece of equipment that I had been waiting for came in. So this should be the final sound that we get here on Getting Over. I hope you all enjoy it. We'll talk more about that on Tuesday. But Chris, it is time for us to break down AEW Revolution. We're going to talk about every single match on the card. We're going to tell you what happened, our reaction to it, some grades and ratings. We're going to go through the card from the main event is obviously where we kick off, but pretty much we'll go in order of importance, not in order of what we got on Revolution. And then at the very end, we will give you our pre-show expectation grades. We'll remind you what those were, and we will drop our post-show final grades as well. So, Chris, you ready to get into it? I am in. I thought this heads up. I thought this was a great show. I'm looking forward to doing this. episode. I thought it was a great show as well. Let's talk AEW revolution and let's begin with the AEW world championship match. MJF defending against Brian Danielson in a 60 minute 
Iron Man match. Now, MJF got a special entrance with an orchestra all wearing black devil masks playing his theme briefly before his music hit. And he entered in the white devil mask that we saw, obviously, multiple months ago. The best part of the entrance, I thought, was actually his robe, which was sick as hell. Really quick, because we have a ton to talk about. I thought this was going to be some epic entrance when it started. But am I wrong that it was just kind of, to quote MJF, mid? Yeah, AEW doesn't, um, they don't do the live production entrances really as well as WWE. So sometimes they just kind of end abruptly. I was hoping for a bit more. On the other hand... MJF's theme song is elite, so I was fine with just getting into it. it. And it didn't play as well to like an orchestral setting as yeah. like Shinsuke Nakamura's theme did to the violin. Right. You know, it's tough to do it when the theme doesn't fit the same way. But alas, let's get to the match itself. So MJF jumped into the crowd after five minutes. He took a drink from a mom and threw it on her kid. Now, one would think that was a plant. Apparently, it was not. We'll find out a little bit more on that as the week goes. But big yikes if that was not the case. He then said into the camera, quote, oh, no, is this going to cost me a star, Dave? I guess I won't get the Brian Danielson Award, which is the best wrestler of the year award from that newsletter. MJF later taunted the crowd more. Danielson hit a sunset flip powerbomb and Huracrana out of the corner. MJF caught him running for a knee bomb, also hitting a super kick before doing the Shawn Michaels pose. MJF missed a springboard Huracrana outside and sold the knee. Then he hit Brian with a pump handle bomb, basically the JML driver that Swerve does, with Danielson almost landing on his neck to the point that Taz audibly winced and talked about how scared he was of the move on commentary. They did a pinfall counter sequence that probably went like 25 attempts. And finally, Brian hit a psycho knee after a lariat to lead 1-0 after 25 minutes. MJF quickly low blow Danielson in front of the referee for a DQ. Then he got consecutive pinfalls on him because he low blowed the guy that nodded the match two to a minute later. I believe I had that, by the way, uh, Brian battered MJF outside, slammed his injured knee into the post and locked in a figure four. MJF put Brian on the timekeeper's table and hit a huge flying elbow drop onto Danielson outside. But Brian beat the count at nine point nine. MJF then did a tombstone pile driver through the rest of the table and sold his knee again. So there was really no count. Danielson bladed and ate a blood capsule simultaneously. MJF, when he was coming back in, hit Heat Seeker and got the fall to lead 3-2 with 19 minutes and 30 seconds left. He ripped at the blade job on Brian's head and screamed, you're the best in the world. You fucking suck. And then he ranted on Brian's kids. Danielson landed some shots outside, including a hammer from the top rope and hit a spider superplex hanging on the top rope, plus a diving headbutt. That somehow led to a huge gash on MJF's head and a crimson mask even though Brian's head hit his shoulder. Uh, Brian ran around MJF for a psycho knee and then forced MJF to tap, tying the match 3-3 with 10 minutes and 40 seconds left. They did salt of the earth, LaBelle lock back to salt of the earth counters. Then they traded blows with Brian laughing and MJF kind of crying as five minutes remained. MJF hit heat seeker for a near fall. Danielson caught him with hammer elbows on the top rope, but MJF pulled him into an avalanche tombstone pile driver off the second rope he was unable to capitalize because he was once again selling the knee. There were two minutes and 30 seconds left. Brian countered a cover into a single leg crab on the knee. MJF nearly tapped, but kept making a fist and kind of biting it. Danielson grabbed the arm that he was going to tap with. And then time ran out with MJF tapping about two or three seconds after the bell. The match immediately was ruled a draw. Fans chanted bullshit. Tony Schiavone Got a message on his headset. He tried to sell like he didn't know what was going on. Danielson got to his feet as trainers gave MJF oxygen in the ring. 
Shivani communicated to Justin Roberts, who announced that Tony Khan would not let this match end in a draw, so it was going to sudden death. MJF pushed the referee, who pushed him back for a near-fall roll-up. MJF then mule-kicked Danielson for another near-fall roll-up. MJF grabbed the title, only to get told it would be a DQ if he used it, so he handed it over to the referee. This was all a plan, and he grabbed the dynamite diamond ring, tried to punch Danielson, but missed it. He ate a poison rana plus a psycho knee for a 2.9 false finish. Brian went after the knee in a crab again, and the referee pulled the ring off MJF's hand, and everyone's thinking here, this is going to be the end of the match. He grabbed the bottom rope with his middle finger and then tapped. That made Brian think he won, so he released the hold. But MJF slid outside, and he grabbed the oxygen tank with his ass sitting at ringside and his back against the ring. When Danielson peeked over the apron to presumably grab him by the head and bring him back inside, MJF nailed Brian in the head with the tank. Apparently, the referee didn't see it. Then he, back in the ring, put Brian in his own label lock for a two-count arm drop. MJF did not release the label lock, though, and that stifled Brian's second wind. He, he actually tried to get his arm up to do the yes chant, which he's never really done before in AEW. But MJF stifled it, kept the label lock in, and earned the tap-out victory to retain the title 4-3 in sudden death overtime. Oof. And Chris, I kind of need to take a breath after that. I, I think I actually need a cigarette after that, okay? Straight up, this was an incredible Iron Man match. We got a bit of Kurt Angle, Brock Lesnar with the purposeful DQs, a bit of Shawn Michaels, Bret Hart with the sudden death, but the match was completely its own from a uniqueness standpoint. Both guys came out looking incredible. Brian for his wrestling and his guts, MJF for his intelligence and strategy, but also his guts as well. There were multiple spots in that match where a regular chicken shit heel would have just tapped, but MJF held his own and showed a ton of fortitude. So even if he's not going to beat you straight up as a wrestler, he's also not going to give up easily. It made him a much more believable champion, despite the fact that three of his four falls came via straight cheating in the match. Now, if Danielson was going to lose an Ironman match, this was the most believable way to do that. It's the cheating aspect and the contrived sudden death finish that makes me wonder whether I can give it the full five stars. Historically, I reserve that rating for clean, hard-fought matches that are just exemplary wrestling and storytelling from bell to bell because I usually never go above my five-star rating. I also didn't find myself experiencing many emotions in the match. Like, I didn't get taken on a roller coaster of feelings for some reason. Now, that may have been because I was slightly distracted, my dog was sick, but it just didn't completely hit for me in that emotional way. So it's an A+, this match, without a doubt. Whether it's 4.75 stars or 5 stars, I just don't know. I'm going to have to rewatch the final 20 minutes, and maybe I'll be there by Tuesday show, but or Thursday show, I mean. But either way, it was a top-tier match, an A+, and it exceeded my expectations, which were already high for the match going into it. The best thing you can say about a, about a 60-minute Iron Man match is that you're never really thinking, oh my God, there's so much time left in this. And never I, thought after, that. Yeah. After the, maybe like, maybe like the first 10 or 15 minutes or so. But after that, it never felt like it slowed down. It, I, it always felt like there was something going on and, and it kept the intensity up. And this was such a different kind of Iron Man match than we typically get either in WWE or on the indies 
where it's like, all right, we know these guys are two amazing wrestlers. Let's still do amazing wrestling stuff for 60 minutes. No, the story here was that MJF can't go 60 minutes or, or won't have the lung capacity to go 60 minutes by the end. And he clearly proved that he did. They told a story throughout this match. And in the story that they told for the whole feud was in this match. And that's why it stayed compelling the entire time. I don't know about five stars either, because I think I'm extra, extra picky about that. Mm -hmm. I'm probably in the like 4.75 range, but I think that's I got a lot. I, I, I got a lot of other notes on here about this match, but I just thought this was, this exceeded, I think, the expectations. I like I knew MJF was gonna make it because he's really, really good at what he does, but but he just um he blew everybody away. And that's how you keep a guy a heel while also gaining the respect of the crowd, which is kind of the same spot Roman Reigns has gotten to as well. Mm-hmm. So a couple other random notes I have here. MJF's moonsault off the middle rope. Uh Horrible camera angle. They did the, the typical WWE <laughs> do it from below. So you miss the height that the guy gets and the, the impressiveness of it. However, they did it a lot better when he did the elbow off the turnbuckle through the table. That, that was much- the best shot from a camera standpoint of the entire show. Yes, they yeah. definitely got that. Excalibur was so good in this match in explaining the strategy. Normally, you there's not a reason to get into strategy. But in a match like this, you have to. So when when MJF gets his third pin, you're thinking, hey, why doesn't he immediately go for another pin again? Just like he did before with with the low blow. But he had the knee issue and Excalibur was explaining, you know, the knee issue that MJF is dealing with. It's distracting him and yada, yada, all this stuff. So that was nice. Excalibur explained why Brian Anderson did the spider suplex, saying he didn't want to take the, the hit himself by doing a superplex. So he kept his legs tied up. I thought he did, just did a tremendous job of explaining uh, why the things happened. The blood in this match, uh, we will get to blood later on in this show, but this is how you use blood in an impactful way because it comes later in the match and it tell it tells the story of the match. Yes, the MJF probably bladed a bit too hard on a headbutt that didn't even hit him in the head. <laughs> but I I can I can buy into the story that they're trying to tell, even if that's and Brian specific. and Brian somehow bladed on his head and ate a blood capsule simultaneously from taking a shot into the table. Yes. Like, yeah. Executed. Not the best, but Appropriate, I appreciated though. the effort yeah. and the, the purpose behind it in the story that they were telling in the match. So that that was OK. And then lastly, I know AW has done this before, but the three arm drops when before you declare a guy mm-hmm. knocked out. I'm so glad they did that. I've been criticizing that WWE doesn't do this forever. It's just, it's a natural storytelling yep. trope you can use in pro wrestling. And WWE has gone to the UFC thing where the ref just says it's over and there's no drama to it. So I love that they did the three arm drops and then it ended up not mattering anyway. So uh, just a couple other things I added uh, onto it, wrote in my notes. Tremendous match. Well, what's interesting about the three arm drop, because I love that too. And I think in any knockout scenario, you should have to do a three arm drop. That's yes. my opinion. Um, but am I wrong? Maybe he actually tapped. But I think in the Samoa Joe Wardlow match on the same show, they just declared that he was knocked out and ended the match. It was very inconsistent. And I think yes. WWE occasionally does the arm drops as well. It's very rare in WWE. But when they do, it's completely inconsistent with the way that they referee 
or officiate is really the right word, um, other scenarios where there's a potential knockout. So I like that they did it. It made for great drama in the match and it was appropriate. But I think the lesson or what you and I are trying to communicate is it should always be like that every single time. Yes, completely. I'm trying to remember. I don't remember if Joe tapped or if the ref just declared it. But yes, it needs to be consistent. Well, I'm sure I have the notes. So when we get to that match, I'll correct myself or or one way or the other. Um, but you're right. This was this was a damn good match. Uh, it was a fantastic main event. It was one of my favorite AEW matches, but also one of my favorite AEW main event matches on a pay-per-view ever. That doesn't mean it was, quote unquote, the best. But in terms of what I like as a professional wrestling fan, we got high quality wrestling great storytelling in this match and completely sensible falls and finishes. There are a couple yes. occasions where you could say, well, why didn't they do this? Or if since he did this, why didn't he do that? And you said that Excalibur explained a couple occasions. One of them was Brian had the submission locked in, but he released it after he got the tap. And he did that because his shoulder was hurting by putting MJF into that submission move. I think it was when he was mm -hmm. doing, um, either the label lock and he, no, I think it was the single leg crab. Then he brought MJF's arm back at the end. So it made sense. Most of the times where you would say otherwise that there would be an inconsistency, but really the booking of the match was just so thoroughly sensible. Sensible. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Like, like, <laughs> and, and, and we don't get that a lot of times in AEW. Like we criticize yes. that all the time. I'm going to say this about basically the entire card. This was, uh, this match and this card was not overbooked. And that is so frequently the case on AEW. It was not overbooked. That is fair. Yes, that is true. So that is a positive. So coming out of this, because we do need to move on, we have a lot more to talk about here. In terms of what's next for these guys going forward, we always try to hit that. Uh, it seems to me like MJF has Hangman Page in the near term and Adam Cole in the long term coming after him. Now, I'm thinking maybe Page at the next pay-per-view, maybe Adam Cole after that. I presume Brian is going to take an extended break that could be as little as three to four weeks. It could be a month, month and a half. I'm not exactly sure what they're going to do, but this did give me hope because, and, and you know, to a degree, Chris, I, th I think I said on the uh, ultimate preview, I said it again on the pre-show that what AEW should do is strap up Brian Danielson, but what they will do is have MJF retain the title and obviously we were, or I was right, I should say, about MJF retaining the title. But in retrospect, you know, maybe my take on that they should have strapped up Danielson was a little rash because this did more to make MJF, in my opinion, than the John Moxley match did. I mean, this felt yes, like a situation where you can now believe this guy as a champion. You know, he's going to hark on the devil stuff and he's going to say, I'm, I'm a piece of shit. I'm the worst person in the world. And like, you know, that's going to be monotonous and he might do the bidding war of 2024 and that's going to be monotonous and all that. But in terms of like caring about him as champion and believing that he is capable of beating anyone he goes up against without pure cheating. Like, again, there was three of his four falls here were cheating, but the first two were really smart. And yes. the last one was kind of smart, too. But the first two were like purposeful within the storyline of the match. So I come out of this in kayfabe. Looking at MJF as a more believable champion, a stronger champion, and not only am I glad that they kept the title on him because I predicted it, I'm glad that kept, they kept the title on him because it was the right move. In the big picture, 
you can see and understand why Brian Danielson as your champion, you know, next week on Dynamite, here he is. Yeah. Like it's a new like Papa rating. Yeah. We'll that's not a that's still a good thing to have. But and I said this too, even though I picked uh Brian Danielson before the uh on our, our Twitter spaces pre-show, there is a litany of faces for him to line up against now. If Danielson won, it's not clear who's even up, you know. So it like it, it did make complete sense for uh, MJF to win. You've got, like you said, Adam Cole, Hangman Page, Ricky Starks, you know, could go back to that, you know, as a short-term thing. Like, there are a lot of options here. Now, Adam Cole, I know, is not coming back till the end of March, so MJF's got something to do for a month, maybe. Um, But, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. This is one of your pillars of the company, and it was a trend on this show that, AEW homegrown guys almost exclusively, except for one match, went over uh, former AEW or former WWE uh, talent. Yeah, more importantly, they went over the in situations where it was a pillar versus like a quote unquote legend or someone who was up there in years in particular. Um, those people went over, and we'll talk about that more later. It's really mm-hmm. two of the matches that we're going to talk about much later in the show. But you make a good point. AEW really focused on their talent on this show and made all the difference in the world in terms of my enjoyment of the product. So that was a huge positive. Chris, let's move to what was basically the co-main event. It was the mid-show main event. Hangman Adam Page against John Moxley in a Texas death match. Now, they put this in the middle of the show because they wanted to give a breather before the Iron Man match. But even more than that, given the fact that there was blood in the Iron Man match, it also gave your eyes a little bit of a rest from the crimson masks on the screen. And this was basically last man standing rules plus submissions somehow. And we'll get to that in a moment. Now, Hangman, I I, I kind of poo-pooed MJF's entrance. Hangman, I thought, had an insanely cool entrance. He came out to Riders in the Sky. He was wearing all black and there were red graphics everywhere. I thought it was a top five. AEW entrance to date. And I'm wondering if you agree with me on that, given you agreed with me about MJF earlier. Yes, very good uh, alternate entrance for Hangman. I don't know if it's a a permanent music change or not, but I did enjoy it. It did make it feel like a bigger deal. Also, by the way, I I looked this up during the match. The rules of a Texas death match are you are pinned and then there's a 10 count. So that's the rules of most Texas. Death yes, matches. that's a typical Texas deathmatch rule. But, but they that did is give the now. I, I, uh, admittedly, I went to use the can, you know, in the during the entrances of this match or right before the entrances, because AEW doesn't give you any time to breathe. It's, they did not. Th- it's this... match, match bell. Maybe there's a post match shit. But as soon as that ends, you get like a 30 second video package. And then the next match starts. Yes. So I ran to the bathroom. I know for a fact they announced the rules. I did not hear what they were. I presume it was knockout or submission. I missed it too. Because <laughs> yeah. I was looking up halfway through the match. What the yeah. rules were. So, so I'm assuming that's what they said because of what we got in the finish. But yes, what you said, pinfall, 10 count. Historically, that is what a Texas death match is from a finish perspective. Anyway, let's get to this match itself. So Hangman used barbed wire on Mox's head early. And that didn't cut him. So Mox still bladed in the corner about three minutes into the match. Then he caught Paige in a triangle and literally stabbed him in the forehead with a fork as blood splattered all over the place. Paige took three different shots with a barbed wire chair 
and both guys were fully bleeding five minutes into the match, maybe less. I really do wish I timed it next time I will. Hangman powerbombed Mox into what was supposed to be two chairs set up with barbed wire. He mostly missed them. Then he wrapped barbed wire around his chest before doing a moonsault outside, but Mox caught him with an RKO back inside. Mox put Paige's hand between two bricks and squashed it before pile driving him into a chain. Hangman hit rolling forearms with barbed wire, then threw Mox into that same chair twice with a fallaway slam and deadeye. Then Paige did a tope shoulder tackle, pushing Mox backward into a barbed wire board. Mox then tripped Hangman off the top rope into another barbed wire board outside. He landed headfirst, but it was elevated, so it actually absorbed the blow and lucked out in that way. Mox countered Buckshot Lariat into Death Rider, then stomped Paige's head into the bricks, but Paige stood at nine, so Mox choked him for another rise at nine, then Mule kicked him low and wrapped a chain around his own neck. And by the way, that was one of, I don't know, eight Mule kicks on this show. Uh, Hangman hit Mox with a brick. Mox gave him double birds as Hangman hit the Buckshot Lariat, then choked him over the top rope with the chain that Mox threw around his own neck as Mox tapped out for his first ever submission loss in AEW. So let me get the criticisms out of the way first. The fork stabbing was disgusting, and it felt almost purposeful just so they could get red early in the match. A Texas death match is an appropriate place for blood. But given how frequently, consistently, and the level to which the blood comes out of John Moxley's head, it had no effect on the match, which is an exact counter to what we got in the Iron Man match, where yes, MJF and Brian Danielson have both bladed before, but they do it so inconsistently and they did it so late in the match that it actually mattered during a 60-minute match where you need you know, things to change the pace and, and give you a different visual. Now, here, there was a massive overuse of barbed wire. I'd have liked to have seen a greater variety of weapons. The bricks were a nice touch. Now, on to the positives. There were multiple big-time spots where each guy had nice stretches of offense, and the finishing sequence was extremely strong, with Mox actually submitting for the first time while being hung, which is appropriate given Paige's name, Hangman. Yes. Plus, Hangman came away as the appropriate and necessary winner, and this went a long way to rebuilding him after that not-so-great title run and a lot of time off. All in all, extremely strong. It was an A match. I'm saying 4.5 stars. I believe I'm going to keep it there despite the blood and, and the fact that it didn't really add to the match. It also didn't necessarily detract from the match. So that's where I sit. But whether it's 4.5, 4.25, it was an A. The first half of this was a disgusting mess, and I hesitate to even call it wrestling. That's but fair. The, but the second half of it really turned it on. And you can get past some of the disgusting stuff at the beginning because of how they finish, where it became about moves. It became about using weapons in a wrestling type of way and not just stabbing someone with a fucking fork and some of that other stuff. It, it, it was really distracting early on. Yes, we said on the Twitter spaces, I set the over under of five minutes on Moxley bleeding. You, you, you said the under, you won. Easily. Uh, you, you also asked me uh, over under on both of them bleeding. I said 10 minutes under. I, I got that one. So the unders hit on both of them in terms of the. the well, I said up. easily. I, th I think I said five and I, <laughs> I was even more right on that. But yeah. yeah. So 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 that wasn't a surprise. But and ultimately, like, it was just 
it was a mess at the beginning, but the second half of the match I really, really liked, and both guys just looked like just strong, good, top-level wrestlers. And ultimately, you know what Hangman winning that way, you know what it reminded me of, and I'm sure it reminded you of this, Princess Leia and Jabba the Hutt in Return of the Jedi. Right? Market zero! <laughs> you haven't seen Return of the Jedi? I have never seen Star Wars. You know this. You've never... Man. I, but, but that was the movie that came out in like 1983. Like, so? that's... that's Oh, man. I, I By the way, uh, spoiler for Tuesday's uh, WWE show, I have another Star Wars reference coming in my notes, oh. so we'll we'll get to that. Yeah, that was, it was... Look, if, go watch... Pull up after this. Pull up YouTube. Pull up Princess Leia choking out Jabba the Hutt. Looked like the exact same thing. Tongue coming out, straining to choke him. I, I, I just I couldn't help but think of that. I thought it was great. Great finish. Really intense finish. Like if you're going to do a Texas Death Match, like that's a good way to do a finish. And to have John Moxley tap out, that is how you make someone, you know, an elite level guy again. That's yeah. that is it, it. It wasn't stabbing Hangman in the face with a fork that made you feel like, oh, this guy's back. It's tapping out John Moxie by choking him with right. a chain that makes you feel like the old Hangman is back. By the way, by the end, Hangman wasn't even bleeding by the end of the match. Yeah, no, that was good. Yeah, that, that will. That's that's the that's why you don't bleed so early in the match because because right. then by yeah. the end when you're in the you're in the final climactic moment you don't have the blood that you well, want to tell the he story he about. didn't go deep enough cuz he's trying to protect the the money maker you know it's it's there's a difference when it comes to blading between guys who try to sell with their faces and guys who don't okay and guys like Mox can have the scars all over their faces and guys yes. like Danielson can do that as well and there's there's guys like MJF and, who bladed massively tonight he was gushing yes. blood out of his head but it was a Too small much. little cut and Hangman is not about to slice his head open. Let me tell you that right now. So no, but he was bleeding a lot earlier. He, he, he was, was but he but, but he didn't I'm saying, I'm saying so much time had gone by that it had healed up by the end. <laughs> well, <laughs> so sure. it wasn't it wasn't lean up. But anyway, great match, largely because of the second half and and how they fixed it. If they were just going like CZW type stuff, I was not having that whatsoever. But they got it in the right direction and end up on a great match that gave the proper result that everybody wanted. So it worked. I know you don't grade all the matches like I do. I'm curious what you would give this. Um, probably like a four point two five. Okay. Mostly, yeah. I, I, if it had been a lot more, yeah, four point two five. I have a feeling when I because I'm going to rewatch these two matches. I have a feeling I'm going to go up for the Iron Man and maybe hit five, and come down for this and go four two five. But it's it's so hard it's to grade an Iron Man match, man. Like it's just it it's is unlike it's anything good. else. It's, it's very, hard. very different. I, I will say of the Iron Man matches I watched, that was one of my favorite, if not my favorite of all time. It was not my favorite of all time, but it was one of the top three I think I've seen. And that's sure. pretty damn good. Trust me. Yeah. Um, did I imagine this before we move on? When Mox at the stomp onto the bricks, did the crowd briefly sing Seth Rollins theme? I did not hear. I, I didn't listen for it. So I, I could have sworn I heard that. And what I loved was, first of all, it was a nice homage for Mox to do that. But the crowd doing it for a short period of time and then getting right back to the match is a really nice moment. They didn't like hijack the show. They just like acknowledged the fact that, oh, we recognize what's happening here. 
and then they kind of let it go. So a, if a that quick, did happen, which I'm, I'm like 75% sure it did. I did a quick Twitter search and a couple other people noticed it. So I think you're right. Okay. So very good job by the crowd. And the crowd was fantastic. San Francisco, Great crowd. Cow Great Palace. Crowd. We didn't say that off the top. We usually comment. It wasn't the Cow, the it wasn't the cow Palace. I thought it was. No, it's the Chase Center. Oh, I thought Cow Palace is where I think they did Dynamite and Rampage. Oh, yeah, you're right. I got him. I got him mixed up. Um, but fantastic crowd really deserve their flowers because they yes. they were I don't want to say they were the MVPs of the show, but they were one of the reasons why the show came across as, as well as it did. And they were completely in it for the entire Iron, Iron Man match, too, which is also because the match was great. But also, you know, crowd crowd. Helped it also out. started at a good time. You know, this show, yep. it did go along, but it, it because there were less matches and Things were spaced out well. Um, the Iron Man match didn't drain the crowd like you would normally think it would. Also, when there's seven falls in an Iron Man match, it's a lot easier to stay engaged than if yep. you do one or three. Yep. It's way easier that way. All right. Let's move to the AEW Women's Championship. Jamie Hayter against Ruby Soho and Soraya in a triple threat match. So Soho came out with a braided mohawk. Britt Baker and Tony Storm were ringside. They immediately went into the crowd, the wrestlers in the match, Trying to use that 4K camera or lens or whatever, it just seemed like unnecessary. Back inside, Hater put Soraya into the apron with a Uranagi and Soho into her knee with another one. Soraya powerbombed Hater out of the corner on a superplex to Soho. Then she put Ruby in a submission, but Hater broke it with her huge lariat. Storm distracted on the apron, allowing Soraya to hit Rampage. So Baker distracted on the apron herself with Soho hitting Destination Unknown for a broken fall. Soho ducked Haterade, which nailed Soraya instead. And then with her, Soraya dead in the corner, Hater locked Soho's arms into a pinning combination for the sudden win. Storm immediately, and I mean immediately, attacked Baker and Hater after the bell. Soho got fed up and threw both heels outside. It looked like she was ready to side with the faces, but instead hit Hater with no future and Baker with destination unknown. Storm threw a cameraman into the barricade and broke his camera. Then Ruby took the spray paint from Soraya and tagged Hater and Baker with green L's to end the entire thing. Let's start with the match. Totally exceeded my expectations. Damn good stuff from Hater and Soho. And Soraya did her best work yet, even though it's still kind of just mediocre. Most disappointing was the sudden finish and immediate attack, which told you the match that you just saw was meaningless. And if Soho and the heels were already on the same page, why were they not working together with the title on the line? Unless we're to assume that Ruby didn't decide until it was all over and she lost, despite the fact that she had neon green in her hair the entire time and has been having neon green on her clothes and in her hair for the last couple of weeks. We also got the very trite booking of WWE superstars being the bad outsiders in a result that we could all feel coming in this match. Hater retaining was the right call, and the wrestling was good. I went 3.5 stars B for this match. The post-match left a lot to be desired from an originality standpoint, though I will say the neutral-to-face-to-heel turn in that moment was done well, given that was the plan booking. Yeah, this was a solid match. First off, I like that Ruby and Jamie Hater had just different looks for the match. It made the it made the match feel bigger. It felt like they're breaking out like, you know, the big look for the big match. So 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 that helped. Sarai is in such a weird place because she's she's kind of like the Ronda Rousey of UFC to 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 pro wrestling where you know, she kind of started the women's revolution. But then 
you know, one thing happens and she's gone and she kind of misses everything that follows. So she's just kind of been in that weird spot where I feel like maybe people just don't remember everything that she did to get things where they are. Match was good. Match was enjoyable. The end was strange. First, I was like, wait, why is... Why is Ruby, uh, Ruby siding with the person who just beat her? You know, <laughs> that, that like that was like all off the bat. And Jamie Hayter lifts her hand up. I was like, what is going on? She just pinned her. <laughs> so, so I was uh, actually relieved to see that Ruby went the other way because that actually made more sense in the moment. If you think about it for too long, does it make sense? No, not really. But I I'm thinking they're going with Ruby just decided in that moment to do it because she was the one who got pinned. And it seemed like they all knew, funny. though, and her hair was like a giveaway. Eh, I don't know about the hair. I mean, she, she's wearing all sorts of different colors all the time. She's I mean, it's, it's the exact green. She's neon green. green. It's, it's the yeah, exact but, but same. She used to have neon green, like, for a while. Like, I, I didn't but Maybe that's that why they chose the color in the first place. That's what I'm trying to get at. Like, I I don't know. But I, I think um, I'm interested. Like, I don't know. I'm kind of interested in what happens next. It, 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 look, we all thought the, you know, WWE outsiders faction thing was going to involve Sasha Banks, Mercedes Monet, and it didn't. So that kind of dampened it for a bit. But I don't know. I'm kind of interested where this goes. Like it, it, something happened. You know, we, we had a pretty good match. The right person won. And something happened afterward to kind of step it, send it forward. So I, I, I liked it. Well, talking about going forward, uh, my presumption is this booking was done to bring back an AEW original, for lack of a better term, who will then side with the faces for a big moment on Dynamite and a eventual big six-woman tag team match. They could even go further than that, but it could be Hikaru Shida, given she was involved in this early on. It could also be Thunder Rosa, who seems to be on her way back. And the idea of Rosa, Baker, and Hater all teaming together is really intriguing, given their history, both in kayfabe, and reality. Now, another mm-hmm. option is Chris Statlander. Yep. I think she's earmarked, earmarked, I'm sorry, for Jade Cargill. And look, they could even go so far to book this all the way out to a blood and guts match, do five on five. There's other, you know, former WWE women in the company. Athena is an option. Ty Mello is there. Uh, I think that's probably it, but there's probably, I can probably think of someone else if I really did. Uh, but th- there's a lot of places they could go with this. I wouldn't be surprised if blood and guts is ultimately the destination. Yeah, maybe that'd be interesting. Look, it, it's there's something like it's not the best story in the world, but there's a story happening, you know, in a women's division, which is a rare for AEW. So I, I consider that a positive. Let's move to the trios championship match, the elite defending against House of Black. This started with a bunch of like, oh, look at those two wrestlers facing off type of spots. Uh, Brody King no sold a 450 splash kicking out at one. Then he crossbodied Kenny Omega into the barricade. Buddy Matthews hit Omega with a great shotgun dropkick that knocked both the Young Bucks off the apron, but they came back with super kicks as Omega countered a cannonball with a V-trigger. Matt Jackson had sliced bread on Buddy, jumping off Malachi Black's chest. Black and Omega then traded knee strikes in a great sequence. King got knocked out with two super kicks and a V-trigger. Omega hit Black with two snapdragons, but Julia Hart distracted on the apron, only for Black to move away after a sequence and Hart to take a V-trigger straight to the kisser from Omega. That distracted Omega just enough for him to eat a black mass for a broken fall. Omega then ate Dante's Inferno for another broken fall. The Elite super kicked everyone and hit BTE trigger on black for another broken fall. Buddy then killed Nick with a knee to the face while he sprung off the ropes 
for an attempted Meltzer driver, with Matt quickly taking Dante's Inferno as House of Black won the trio's titles. This was an exceptional match that we got. The wrestling was top tier. There were plenty of false finishes without overdoing them, and the right trio won with House of Black absolutely needing the titles. Now, the lack of storyline remained a big detractor for this match. It just didn't matter once the bell actually rang. The only real sin here was not letting the title win breathe at all. AEW jumped right into the next match, and this was supposed to be a big moment for House of Black. But Omega took a lot of offense, including two finishers, and Buddy's knee to Nick's face was one of my highlights of the show. It was just such a great moment in professional wrestling, and it came in the finish. Oh, by the way, they actually tagged each other the entire match, and that that gets an extra thumbs up from the Silver King. 4.5 stars and an A. Damn good match. I'm at 4.5 as well. When Buddy Matthews hit that knee, I literally yelled out loud, oh, fuck. Yeah. (laughs) He absolutely nailed it. To your point about talking about different people facing off one-on-one in the ring, opening with Kenny Omega and Buddy Matthews. And I think it was Excalibur saying that, hey, these two guys have been compared to each other for a long time. And a lot of people called Buddy Matthews a, a, a poor man's Kenny Omega with the knee strikes back in the day. I contended at the time and I, I think I still kind of believe this. And I think the end of the match uh, uh, showed that Buddy Matthews is better at the knees than Kenny Omega is. I think he always has been. Mm. And good thing. Good. Good. He got to to shine there. And then we can you can debate it. Whatever. I just I, I've, I've always, always believed this. I've always believed this. His gear, the fire like at the below his knees, the way it mm-hmm. like pops up when he, when yeah. he delivers the knee makes it look better. Sure. Yeah. That, and that's part of it. I mean, you're not really kneeing the guy in the face. So that, that right. that's a huge part of it for sure. So uh, that was good. I really like the House of Black entrance. Uh, I really like Julia Hart's look and, and all that. So that was real solid. I like the Young Bucks California pants that I'm pretty sure they've worn those before. Yeah. Look, this had no real story going into it, but we agreed. Look, if House of Black is ever going to be anything, they have to win this. And they did. And they did it in uh exciting fashion i don't know what's next for the young for the elite kenny omega can i'd like kenny omega to kind of get back to one-on-ones um kind of remind us who he is uh as you know one of the best wrestlers in the world so yeah good stuff all around yeah that was my same thought as well omega getting back into the one-on-one picture would make a lot of sense you could even give him like the all-atlantic title and have him go overseas and defend it a few times i'd be interested to see uh Omega back in that singles division and the Bucks can do tag team stuff. And that's totally fine as well. Speaking of, let's get to the tag team championship match. The guns against the acclaimed Jay Lethal and Jeff Jarrett and Orange Cassidy and Danhausen in a fatal four way match. Orange came out wearing all black. Max Caster was not on his game whatsoever with his rap. And this had the awful rules where only two men are legal at once. The heels did a four way strut and scissored each other. Satnam Singh ate an orange punch, punch from Danhausen, and a famouser from Billy Gunn. Then the guns double low blowed their dad. Acclaimed hit a rival and mic drop for a broken fall. Jarrett missed a guitar shot, and the referee stole the guitar from Caster. That led Caster to eat a golden globe to the face and the stroke for a false finish. Jarrett got into a shoving match with the referee. Danhausen ate 310 to Yuma with the guns retaining the title. The crowd, no joke, was silent after the bell for a good like three minutes. Chris, I, can, I can only speak to my own personal taste here. And this was not for me in any way. 
there were some nice sequences. Really? Yeah, but there was far, far, far too much comedy. Far, far, far too much interference. And no time where it felt like a change was coming. Plus, this was basically a no DQ match. And the referee stole the guitar from Caster for no reason whatsoever. I went 2.5 stars and a C. Ooh, nah, this was fun. Like th- This was a fun match. First off, again, shout out Doesn't to Excalibur. Shout out to Excalibur. The guns came out first. And my thought is... Look, I know you want the Acclaim to come out last and do their thing, but I hate when the champion doesn't come out first. That was the only reason they did it. And right when I thought that, Excalibur says, now I know that the champions usually come out last, but it's really the champion's prerogative, and they wanted to come out first and set the tone. Boom, right there. Thank you. I mean, they always say that. I know, but like, I thought that in the moment Excalibur explained it, I thought he was on top of his game, and this is another example of that. Danhausen maybe for the first time since he's been in AEW actually got to do some wrestling and like looked pretty decent. I didn't, I again, don't, I didn't know much about him before AEW. I just have not seen him do much. I thought the Dan Housen sat him sing face off and the Billy Gunn, you know, famous on the dude's back was kind of funny. Uh, Max Caster did a bit where he pulled down the straps like Kurt Angle, but he didn't have any straps on. I thought that was pretty funny. And there, there was a Jeff Jarrett false finish in there uh, where I did think for a second that they were going to win. So uh, I, I disagree that it always felt like the guns were going to win. There were a couple times I thought Jeff Jarrett and Jay Lethal might actually uh, might actually win. You're right. Dead silence when the guns won, which was notable with this crowd. But this was my theory on our Twitter Spaces pre-show it was for something that was going to come afterward. And that happened. Yeah. Well, I mean, this is what we talked about on the ultimate preview as well. So uh, for the first and only time all night, Renee Paquette came out for a post-match interview, which was obviously telling that something was going to happen. The guns talked shit until FTR's music hit and they made their return. FTR hit a spike pile driver off the ropes and shatter machine, which was called that by Excalibur and not big rig. It's interesting because Uh, Edge and Beth Phoenix hit Shatter Machine on uh, Finn Balor over at Elimination Chamber, called that, and I was like, oh, that's the big rig, but they're calling it the old WWE name. That's cool. And then they're (laughs) calling it Shatter Machine here in AEW, which is interesting. Anyway. I think that was was just a slip up. Maybe. Uh, Dax also got busted open hard way by his eyebrow, like 30 seconds into this. It wasn't a blade. It it happened. Uh, They grabbed the titles and they just kind of dropped them and the whole thing ended. Now, it would have been nice if this return was not so telegraphed. There was zero reason for Renee to come out to the ring. Just there was none. The guns could have cut a promo. They could have been beating someone down. Million different things you can do. Or FTR simply could have rushed them after the bell. I can't imagine that they're going to be pushing this like three months to the next pay-per-view. So I presume FTR will win the titles on an upcoming Dynamite special or something like that. It was all fine. It didn't get me particularly excited. Initially, we thought FTR might be in the match as a replacement, or they might have been in one of those battle royals and won and been in the match. They weren't. They let the match go on, and they decided to you know, re-debut them or, or return them, I should say, uh, after the fact. That's okay. Uh, it was decent. They got a nice pop. It didn't really do anything for me. I liked it. I, I, I just I like seeing them back, for one, and this completely changes the dynamic of the AW tag team picture because we said coming in, like, why are these four teams in the tag team match? What the what the heck happened to the 
to the greatest uh, tag team division of all time. Well, it's starting to maybe get sorted out again. The Elite lost trios title, so they're free. FTR is back. So, like, things are are, are So, changing. we're going to hey, go back to the uh, the Usos New Day equivalent for, in AEW, the, the continuous no, Young Bucks and we're, FTR? We're, we're, doing, we're doing FTR guns, and they had a previous story from a while they back. Do. So, they so, do. So, that all totally makes sense. I think... I think this was this will this is going to kind of reset the division moving forward and it'll be, you know, you'll get less of Orange Cassidy and Dan Housen, you know, in a championship match, so to speak. So I think that's all a positive. And yeah, interview was random and telegraphed, but that that always happens in wrestling. Sometimes no, they do interviews after they sometimes there was a there was a, a WWE match a couple of pay-per-views ago where they didn't interview afterward for no reason whatsoever. It just no, like, they it happens. And it's and I'm and I'm fine with it being telegraphed. It didn't happen. Because like happen? we said, I don't remember who it was, but I just remember it happened. Because it didn't. But I was also fine with yeah it being telegraphed nothing because like we said the crowd was dead silent. You could not just end it with the guns winning and that being no, the but end that's even it. more reason they can just beat them up or they can just cut a promo themselves with the mic and have it be natural. When when you have it's, all these matches I, and Renee doesn't do shit and after this match she comes out to interview the guns of all people. It's like oh okay here's FTR like they for me it it totally telegraphed and ruined the surprise element. But it wasn't. It was never going to be that big of a surprise. I don't think. You know, I like think, they, they weren't. I, I think two stomps and then music hits is a surprise. I mean, look, I'm look, I'm the big surprise guy. You're really you defending know, this tactic you, you, match. You know, and, I, and I'm, match. You really are. I th- the match was fun. I just thought not. the match was fun. The, the post match, yes, was completely telegraphed. But considering it was the guns, like I'm fine with it. Yes, it could have been better. Yes, if they had done what you said. That's all I'm saying is it would have been better. better. I but I, but I don't. But I don't think it was bad necessarily. Either. I think it was telegraphed. Saying it's telegraphed this doesn't saying it, it was bad I agree. or You're terrible. just shitting on everything that had to do with this match. And I think well, the ma- this, no, this is the match. Or, or, no, no. Or, let me or, let me fucking reset the I table. I think it's. Here. I think it's leading into how you feel about that table here. The match <laughs> sucked. Okay, the match was a 2.5 star C. It was garbage. I'd never want to even think about the match again. The post match was totally fine. I was explaining how it could have been better and more realistic. That's it. You you were just hating on it the whole time because I think you hated because saying that it was telegraphed is a descriptor. It's not me saying it was terrible. I agree it was telegraphed. Anyway, okay, that's it. it. That's all it has to be go said. Watch match go go I'm done with the go match. Go on. It, it was fun. We're moving on. Uh, Ricky Starks fought Chris Jericho with JAS barred from ringside. On Rampage, Starks attacked Jericho on commentary with the show ending in a pull apart brawl. Now this match opened the main card on Revolution. Starks dominated early. Jericho came back with his signatures. Starks countered a codebreaker into like a sort of powerbomb, but Jericho countered the spear with a codebreaker. Then Starks hit a spear off the ropes for a near fall and later countered Walls of Jericho into a single leg crab. Sammy Guevara then ran down only to get speared by Action Andretti as a distraction for Jericho to get the bat and nail Starks into the gut, but Starks blocked Judas Effect landed forearms, and then pulled Jericho into Rochambeau for the win. Now, quick, since it factored into the finish, what good is a ringside ban if someone can still just run down to the ring? That's like a DQ in a Hell in a Cell match. Okay, it's nowhere near as bad as a DQ in a Hell in a Cell match, but it is still stupid. We have to be honest about that. Aside from that, this was a really solid opener, the nice baby face pop to begin the show. I didn't find it to be spectacular wrestling by any means, but... We've seen Jericho have better matches recently, and I thought this would be akin to those. We got the right winner, a necessary winner in Starks, 
And maybe now we'll finally even get a break from Jericho. Plus, the block of the Judas effect was a really cool way to start the finishing sequence. I went 3.5 stars in a B. Yeah, this was solid. A, a nice, solid opener. Nothing too crazy. And again, wasn't overbooked. It would have been really easy to, to, to do something really stupid uh, at the end of this match. Yes, I agree. Running down to the ring when your man from ringside should maybe be a DQ, but at least he at least he didn't like hang out there. At least he was intercepted. Essentially, uh, we talked about on the Twitter Spaces pre-show. We were worried about something else happening with Chris Jericho and maybe a new member of JAS uh, interfering or something like that. That didn't happen. And ultimately, Ricky Starks just straight up got two wins over Chris Jericho, and he looks great. And he actually said in the post-match uh, post-show press conference, "That's his first pay-per-view win of all time." So shout out to Ricky Starks, who, again, among many people, can get back into the title picture. I guess Ricky Starks has name dropped Kenny Omega a couple times in the presser. So maybe something happens there. But, uh, you know, real solid in a situation where Jericho often wins these matches that he probably shouldn't. Uh, he didn't. So, again, another AEW pillar type of guy winning it over a former WWE wrestler. And I think Excalibur also mentioned, since we're giving him so much credit on this show, uh, Jericho has now lost four or five matches consecutively. I think this was four. Uh, so clearly they're doing a losing streak storyline with him. And I could definitely see that leading to perhaps JS breaking up and maybe Jericho even turning babyface, which would be, would be a nice refreshing tilt on the entire thing. So we'll see what happens. Oh, oh. Yeah. I do believe that Fozzie has a uh, concert series coming up. So Jericho should be away for a little bit. When he comes back, hopefully everything's refreshed, and I would love if the JAS was dead. Also, uh, Chris Jericho is 0-4 at Revolution, apparently. Very interesting. Where's okay, uh, Jack Perry, Jungle Boy, fought Christian Cage in a final burial match. Now, this was changed from No Holds Barred. You may say, hey, Silver King, uh, how did that get changed when they just announced the match Wednesday on Dynamite? Well, I'll tell you. On Rampage, Jungle Boy in a taped promo said a fight isn't enough to end their feud. Quote, since you're a big fan of my dad, I'm going to give you a chance to say hi to him when I put you in the ground. So this was changed to a final burial match 48 hours before the show. And Chris, I get the reasoning provided. I do. It just kind of felt from a stipulation standpoint, unnecessary and kind of ill-fitting, at least to me. Yes, in the moment, I would have been fine with it if you know, we had set this up a week ago, you mm -hmm. know, or something like that. If you weren't paying attention, if you missed Rampage, you would have been completely confused why they did this. And, and like, I understood it because, you know, they mentioned Luke Perry multiple times. And I, I said that on our ultimate preview, just like plan that out more ahead of time. And you can probably lean into it a little bit more if that was the purpose and really set up final burial and explain what the rules are mm -hmm. so we know before the match starts. Exactly. We didn't quite know what the rules were. Okay, so the gimmick wound up being, and we thought it was going to be a buried alive match. It wound up yeah. being a casket match with a casket elevated in a grave type area uh, beyond the stage. So Christian wore a black turtleneck muscle shirt, which straight up, dude, I didn't even know that existed as an item of clothing that you could buy. And Jack was in jeans and boots. So this Include. dragged early until Christian stepped on Perry's hair yeah. and pulled him upwards his, by his like head in a really cool spot. Or maybe it was by his arms. I think it was by his arms. Uh, then he took a violent bump into the barricade, eating a tope suicida. At some point, he got busted open on his brow. 
Then he whipped Jungle Boy with his belt uh, up the ramp until opening the casket and revealing two steel chairs. Jack hit a cannonball off the stage and then went for a chair shot with Christian low blowing him and throwing dirt into his eyes. He hit kill switch on the dirt, but Jungle Boy avoided a concerto and locked in snare trap, putting the handle of a shovel in Christian's mouth. Jack then pulled the trigger with a concerto, dragging Christian into the casket, kissing him on the forehead and closing the lid. And then the casket just kind of fell into the abyss with a puff of dust or smoke kind of popping out afterward. Now, the booking here was spot on. And that is, in the case of this match, more important than the work rate and the match quality. They played into the concerto spot from TV, though when Jack delivered it, he actually hit him on the head, which was yeah. unfortunate. Yeah. Um, but this gave Perry a cathartic signature win over a veteran. And even though the first half was kind of whatever, the brawl up by the casket at the end was really solid. The finish was well done with all of the finishing moves, the dirt in the face, the shovel. I still found the stipulation unnecessary. And I literally and legitimately laughed out loud when the coffin dropped into the grave. It was very cartoonish to me. Everything was executed really well. I'm still going to go 3.5 stars and a B, but if they tweaked a couple of those items, it would have come across a little bit better. I think I'll go about four stars. I thought the coffin dropping into the dirt was actually really cool because I didn't know it was coming. So I was like, whoa, like that was just kind of surprising okay. and, and added to it. I think it was a weird stipulation. I think they could have clarified that a bit better, but I, I liked it. Sleeveless turtleneck <laughs> is some elite healing work. <laughs> However, that thing uh, does not breathe very well because everything up around your neck is tight. So why would you <laughs> wear a turtleneck in a wrestling match? Can you like He's, he seemed to be sweating uh, extra around his uh, face? Unless he had like a the brace match. on or something like, I mean, yeah. holy shit, that was so weird. On the flip side. What do I say about Drew McIntyre in jeans and, and shirtless? Like same thing with Jungle Boy, like that look. He is no longer Jungle Boy. He is Jungle Man when he is wearing <laughs> the shirtless, no, no, no wrist tape or anything with the jeans. Look he looks, she's got me saying, hey now. He looks huge, dude. Am I am I wrong that like he looked like he's beefed up a bit? He's a cut, he's a cut dude. And you know what? You know, credit to MJF too. He took off that robe and, and I saw I heard some reactions out there. Um, both those guys really put in the work in the gym for sure. Yeah. I mean, but I just, you think back to jungle boy with the trunks and the wrist tape and he just, he looks so skinny. I don't know if it was just the jeans doing it, but he looked bigger. So credit to him. He looked great. Um, and yeah, the concerto Oof. hope Christian is okay. Cause he really took that one in the side of the head. Um, and lastly, jungle boy, he delivers in big matches. Like he kind of, you can, he can kind of get lost in the picture week to week on TV, but this is I, I thought this is one of the best matches of the night. I this match ended and I was like, man, how are the elite and House of Black going to follow that? You thought this was uh, one of the best matches of the night? Be best, they ultimately did. Best this what number? Top top. Uh, let me see the whole card here. I, I well, put if this on or I can buy it any more than behind that. the Iron Man match. I probably put it third behind the six man and the Iron Man. Ahead of the I death think. match. 
Yes, I, I think I may have given okay. it a higher grade or whatever, but, but T- yeah, I, I, this, okay. it, I, maybe because the expectations were low going into this, but I thought this was real. So I mean, you go back to the last pay-per-view, Jungle Boy's had some really, really good pay-per-view matches. Yeah. Um, he delivers kind of on the big stage. Uh, and again, a AEW pillar going over a former WWE wrestler. I did miss one item here that I did mean to mention and I forgot. Uh, when Jungle Boy was standing over the casket, there was a long delay before he closed the lid. And I was kind of like, if, at first when I was like watching, I was like, close the fucking lid. Like the match is over or whatever. <laughs> I was waiting to, yeah. but, but then I realized, and this was a really good piece of storytelling that it, it eclipsed me until I was kind of going over it again, like waiting for the next match to start. He was to some degree bearing another father and he yeah. already had to do it once and how painful that was. He had to do it a second time. He kissed him on the forehead. He closed the lid. So it was almost like doing it again, this time to a mentor as opposed to a biological father. Really nice touch. And again, the storytelling in this feud, it it was always sensible. Like it always just made sense what they were doing and the levels they were going to and all that type of stuff. But it dragged on really, really long. And then Christian got hurt and they did the whole stuff with Luchasaurus and then Christian went away. Then he came back and they kind of said, you know what? Let's just kind of restart this and get this out of the way in two weeks. And they succeeded. So I got to give them credit for that. It's going to be really interesting to see what happens with Christian from here. It has been three years since he signed with AEW. Now, he could have injury time added on. If he doesn't, it's possible that his contract has expired or will be expiring. And if Edge is working one final year in WWE, they could potentially do tag team stuff together and like dual swan songs, uh, dual retirements, or he could take a bunch of time off TV and return to AEW, or he could just straight up retire. So I am curious to see what Christian, ha- what happens with Christian here. Not the biggest fan of his, but this was a really solid way to put over Jungle Boy. And it's fair to say that he still has some wrestling left in him. Do we, do we know, was Christian ever cleared by WWE? I know he came back and did one segment did the during, punt kick. during the I, Thunderdome era. Yeah, he did the punt kick. I don't kick. think but I they don't didn't know that show he was the punt kick. But did they show the punt kick or did they like camera showed away? No, they showed it, but it was taped and angles and stuff. Um, yeah. That was different than being cleared to do a whole match. I don't believe right. he was cleared for that, but I mean, that, they'll clear him. I mean, it's, that's part of it. But and also just good for Christian to come back, you know, after, you know, he, he wanted to keep wrestling. WWE wouldn't clear him. Um, and he has since been the impact world champion. He beat Kenny Omega puts on a great match to help get jungle boy over. Like he's had a really, really solid run in, in the past few years. And I know, you know, edge is edge. I know there, and I know there's kind of a Twitter theory view that Ed Christian is secretly actually better than edge. I wouldn't put it that far, but well, that is, he is total horseshit. He, he is right very, very solid in his own right. And these last couple of weeks were a reminder of how good uh, he can be. All right. A couple more matches before we move on to the grades and wrap this whole show up. The TNT Championship Samoa Joe against Wardlow. Powerhouse Hobbs was shown in a suite throughout the match. He, of course, holds the brass ring and will get the next TNT title match against the winner coming out of this. Uh, Wardlow hit a double jump moonsault early. Joe caught him out of the corner with a Uranagi. Wardlow came back with an F10 and a Swanton bomb for a near fall. Joe locked him in the coquina clutch, but Wardlow survived and later powerbombed Joe off the middle rope. But Joe almost immediately recovered, 
He taunted Wardlow with the symphony. So Wardlow put Joe into the rear naked choke with Joe's arm falling three times for the knockout win. So we said we'd come back to this in the show. They didn't just do the quick tap and see him knock out, and he did not tap. He did not submit. They did the arm falling three times, so they were consistent about it on this show, and that is very good. Uh, So we definitely got some degree of what we wanted to see here. (laughs) Big meaty man slapping me. (laughs) But I got to say, I felt the match was largely unspectacular. Like Wardlow submitting Joe didn't sit right with me. Like this is a submission master in Joe. And and given they were doing two more where Mox and Brian were submitting, just seemed like a lot. And Wardlow's not really a submission specialist. The finish kind of came suddenly and the match itself never really left first gear, but that's okay. Not every match is going to be a work rate classic. No idea how they're going to book this with Hobbs getting the title match on dynamite because he really should win that. But at the same time, Wardlow absolutely should not lose. This was solid. I went three stars and a B minus. Yeah, this was this was right after the this came right after the Texas death match, I think. Right. Yeah. So it was. Yeah, it it was a cool down. Like there's no doubt about it um, at that point, uh, which is tough for them. I thought the match was fine. It was good. You did some big man spots. You got some power bombs. You did some stuff that you just didn't see anywhere else on the card. You know, and AEW needs stuff like that. You need to have different types of things. Choking out Samoa Joe, I was like, whoa, like that's interesting, both because Wardlow won and to win like that kind of makes me change my mind on what I think is going to happen on Dynamite. I don't think you can have Wardlow lose the title. Oh, no, you can't. No, you can't. Four days after doing this, which is notable. The only, way, up- the only way you can have Wardlow lose is if like Samoa Joe tries to get even and cost him, the, you know, or, or something like yeah. that happens. But yeah, right. and, and you know, Wardlow mentioned in the post post show press conference that he failed to cash in the ring a year ago uh and says it said you know in character that Hobbs would too so it's it's not unprecedented um but again coming out coming right after the Texas death match it's the second match in a row to end by via choking somebody mm-hmm. so it just doesn't land as well we just saw a guy choked out with a chain job of the hut style over the ring you know, choking a guy in a headlock just doesn't hit the same right after that. So that's just the way things were booked and placed on the card. It didn't maybe land as, as well as it did. But look, good for Wardlow. I, I think this is probably a bit of a run for him. He says he wants to do a TNT Open Challenge. Obviously, he's got Powerhouse Hobbs next, so we will see. Let's just hope this TNT title run for him is better than the last one. That's all I can really yes. say. Yep. Uh, we had Mark Briscoe and the Lucha Brothers against Ari Davari and the Varsity Athletes on Zero Hour, which was the kickoff show. Ray Phoenix badly missed a Hurricanrana out of the corner, which is the most rare thing to say Phoenix missed anything. Uh, five guys combined for a super duperplex out of the corner with Tony Nese hitting a 450 immediately after for a near fall. There was a great false finish here where it looked like the baby faces might lose. But the Lucha Bros combined for a cool fear factor double move before Briscoe hit the flying elbow drop for the win. Pentagon also did a package pile driver on Mark Sterling after the bell for an extra pop. Three stars, B minus, you know, solid. No problems here. Yeah, it was fine. So, like you said, some good false finishes where I thought, you know, Lucha Brothers and Briscoe might actually lose. So Mm -hmm. credit to them for that. It was fine. And on that note, before we get to the grades, which we're going to do 
almost immediately. I just wanted to briefly talk about the formatting of Zero Hour with Renee Paquette and RJ City interviewing people both in the arena and backstage. This felt so much more natural and energetic than what AEW has done in the past. And it is far better than the simple panel discussion on the WWE kickoff shows airing a lot of the video packages that you're going to see on the show anyway. Now, that said, and everyone has their own taste, so this is not an insult. The RJ guy was immensely annoying to me. Someone that I never want to listen to talk or do something on a kickoff show ever again. Not entertaining at all. But the format of this, I thought was a huge improvement. Yes, I thought I found it entertaining and um, it made everything feel bigger. They kept going to live shots, you know, with Renee in the arena and the crowd could hear her there. To me, that was just much more engaging and interesting. Something to have on in the background as opposed to having three or four more matches in the card turning into a 15 match card. So I I, I really liked it. I, I saw some people online saying it was very wwe of them and i was like i don't know what wwe you're, you're watching like you yeah said, i don't you know just what get that panels yeah. you just get a panel there uh and in whatever i thought this was interesting i was not i i knew of rj city i'd never really seen him before though um a little over the top in some spots but also generally seemed to really like enjoy it you know he i know he does the hey ew show so like this is a guy who's really into it i thought it was entertaining and interesting and more natural than a lot of the pre-show stuff we get before. So uh, I liked it. I hope they keep doing it. All right. Well, Chris, let's move to the final portion of this instant analysis podcast. And that is our grades for the 2023 AEW revolution. Now, before we get to the post-show grades, let's go over what our pre-show expectation grades were on our ultimate preview. My expectation grade was a B plus yours was an A minus, and the getting overheads weighed in on Twitter before revolution. 11.4% said A, 59.5% said B, 20.3% said C, and 8.9% said D to F. And I don't know how your expectation grade for a show can be D to F, but that is not a small number. So we had to count it, whereas in other situations when it's 1%, it doesn't, you know, you know, it's all people just trolling. That averaged out, shockingly, Chris, to a 3.24, which is not just a B. That's a low B. So the expectations going into AEW Revolution from the listeners, I think for the first time in the history of the show, fell below what both your and my grades were on the Ultimate Preview. That might be the lowest we've ever had for any show almost, I think, unless I'd have to think back to the early days. But I'm almost positive there have been some WWE pay-per-views that were B expectations. Especially, I guess, in the the, the Thunderdome era, too. There was probably something. But 3.24 on average, that is very Look, the the build was not good. It wasn't. That said, I was looking forward to this card. That's why I gave it an A-. minus. Now, let's with that, Chris go to the post-show grades. As always, when we do the grades, I start with you. So Chris, what was your final grade for AEW Revolution? I am right on the line between A and A-. I thought this was a great show. I thought top to bottom, this was AEW's best show that they've done. It was not overbooked. Best, wait, hold on. 
30 second timeout. Best yep. meaning number one pay-per-view ever. Yes. Now okay. Forbidden Door is kind of different. I'm not counting AEW door, only. Number AEW one AEW only. I think this was my favorite top to bottom show because it never felt like, oh my God, we've still got nine matches to go after this. We didn't <laughs> right. we didn't start off the show with two 25 minute matches. Um, like we get through two matches and it was like 740 here. And I was like, oh man, we're like making pretty good time. And like, so I, I, I never like dreaded what was coming. Everything on the show was pretty good to great. We got a we got an all time main eventer a main event match I think, so I I thought I, everybody looked good like I just I thought this was a really good maybe this was the best show that AEW has done on a pay per view, and for that I think I'm gonna go with an A at like a 94 out of 100 a low okay. A I was a low A minus coming in I was like a 90 out of 100 I'm I'm thinking 94 low A here. Okay, so it still exceeded your expectations to a significant degree, but yes, right on the border though, not a high A, a low A. Okay, yes. So um, let me go ahead and I'll give my grade next, and then we'll go to the uh, getting overheads, our listeners and our followers on Twitter at getting overcast for the Silver King. Um, it definitely exceeded my expectations. Let's let's get that straight. I was at a B plus. I thought that was a completely fair expectation grade coming into the show, but you're right in that. The main event was spectacular. It was an A+. There were two A matches, no matter what level of A you wanted to put them on, the Texas Death Match and the Trios Match. And there was a lot of other really entertaining stuff. I think what some are confusing is a great show with a show that doesn't make you angry, frustrated, and tired. Because this show did not make me angry. It did not make me frustrated. And I'm not tired coming in to do this instant analysis like we have been so many other AEW shows. And that's because of putting the wrong people over, convoluted match finishes, all that type of stuff. That went away. So, Chris, I disagree that it was the best AEW pay-per-view. I do believe it was the most consistent from top to bottom. There was never a valley where I said, and, and this is coming from someone who hated the tag team title match. Even that, though, I understood, hey, it was fun. The crowd liked it. Like, wasn't my taste, but other people liked it. So it didn't have that valley where you said, oh, like, this is the popcorn match or this is the piece of shit booking. We knew it was coming. That didn't happen. At the same time, even though I loved the Iron Man match and I liked very much a lot of the other matches on the card, it didn't have the peaks that some of AEW's best pay-per-views have had previously. So I do believe it was the most consistent, but it was not the best. Unlike you, you went with a low A. I'm going to go with a flat A-, minus, which is still a very, very good grade. And again, yes, it, is. it exceeded my expectations coming into the show. Yeah, no, all those points are fair. I agree that the the, the peaks or maybe not as high as some other ones. This wasn't Adam Cole and Dana Bryan debuting and stuff like that. And I think mm -hmm. we're so conditioned to expect and wait for some big debut to happen at every single AEW pay-per-view that the fact that it didn't, and we got the FTR return, mm -hmm. which was telegraphed, like was fine. But, you know, we got a new TNT champion. We got new uh, trios champions. Uh, we got Jungle Boy establishing himself in a unique match. We got... Uh, a main event match that will 
go up as one of the best Iron Man matches of all time. I just thought top to bottom, it was... It, this was unlike any AW show we've ever had. And I think probably because they had a 60-minute match, they had to do it differently. But, they again, they only gave us one match on the pre-show. They could have given us three or four like they've done in well, the that past. Well, so, that was also a thrown-together match on the pre-show. Chris, the, right. the, the truth is... It, what, I'm saying what, I'm saying AW approached this show differently they than they ever have before, and but I think it paid off huge. They did, and I agree with that. The proof will be in the pudding, though, if they learn that lesson for their next pay-per-view, Double or Nothing, and going forward, if they yes. realize even if you don't have a 60-minute Ironman match, you can still book a pay-per-view just like this. You can add one more match than they had here and do the exact same show with like 10 matches flat, you don't go crazy 13, 14, 15, or whatever number, some of that craziness that we had previously. You do nine or 10 matches, you give everything time to breathe, and you have consistent, sensible booking, where even if it's not a result that the fans like, it's a f- one that they can accept. And I think that what, is what we got from Revolution. That's why I gave it an A minus. You gave it an A. You liked some of it more even than I did. Now, yes. As far as our listeners, the getting overheads on Twitter yes. and those that listen to this show, let's get to their final grades. And these really reflect the show exceeding expectations. A reminder, okay? They, our listeners, are at 3.24 as an average, which isn't just a B, it's a low B on the grading scale. And they were 11% A, 60% B. Here in the final grade, A, 35.8% B, 8.3% C, and 5% D. That averages out to 3.89 and a solid B plus from the listeners. So you may say, well, hey, Silver King, Chris, Vintage, they're not where you guys were, the A or A minus. That's okay. They recognize the show was way better than they expected it. And that is a significant jump going from a 3.24 to a 3.89. So I think everyone believes that Revolution exceeded expectations, that it delivered a really high-quality show. Some liked it more than others. That's bound to happen. But for me, A-, minus. I sit right between you and the listeners. I think one of the biggest, one of the best things I can say in AW's favor about booking this pay-per-view is that there was nothing on the show where I said, why is this happening? Why are we doing this? And actually, Tony Khan said in the post- press conference that um, people weren't featured on the show like they like maybe he would have wanted because they had one match taking up an hour and people like Jade Cargill, you know, and he needs to make it up, make it up to them or something like that. <laughs> Jade Cargill does not need to have a pay-per-view match on this show. No. Like we said, she's a T also, she's a TV champion. So she doesn't need to that. Like we didn't have that. Like, Oh my God, why is this a match? Bad wrestling, bad story. We don't need this here. Like, do an hour long match made them cut out, cut out the fat, so to speak of, of what they normally do. Instead of trying to fit everybody on this massive roster onto the card, they were forced to basically stick with things that matter and have a bit of a story. And I think that paid off huge. And that is a lesson that I hope they pick up that I know you only do four of these a year. You don't need to have everybody on these. You don't. And that's why I'm saying the proof is really going to be going forward and seeing if they learn that lesson, they realize why this was so well received, or they just think, oh, well, the wrestling was good and people liked the way we booked it. So, you know, we'll just go back to what we were doing previously and think about booking, you know, 
similar match finishes or something like that. Hopefully they learn the lesson that in some cases less is more and letting things breathe and not shoving everyone onto a single show um, is the key on the way out. Chris really quick. Okay. Let's just give a quick thought. Okay. Two things happened on um, Sunday night that might be hinting at a certain someone returning to AEW. Number one, I mentioned it in the main event, MJF screaming into the camera. I'm the best in the world, best in the world. He said it like three times. Obviously, we know that's a tagline, not of Shane McMahon, although it was for a period of time, but of CM <laughs> oh, I forgot about that. <laughs> and uh, FTR, when they returned, they came out in very bright, colorful shirts. And if you look at the AEW shop Twitter or just the AEW shop, it is called FTR Live in Color. And you may say, well, what does that have to do with CM Punk? Uh, well, Live in Color is very similar to Living Color, which is the <laughs> artist behind Cult of Personality, CM Punk's entrance theme and a very popular song, of course, uh, from back in the day. So, Chris, I got to tell you, you know, I really didn't think the CM Punk thing was going to happen. Kind of feels like it's going to happen. I don't know. Maybe I'm throwing a couple things together that are just innocuous, but I mean, this is a conversation I have at a later time when we have more time. But first blush kind of seems like it's happening. I think there have been a lot of tea leaves over the past few weeks to indicate that everybody's in a much better spot now. Um, And frankly, I hope CM Punk comes back. He's entertaining. I like when he's on TV. That doesn't mean I think he's a great person. That doesn't mean I agree with things that he said and did. Absolutely not. But this is wrestling. And everybody comes back at some point, usually. And if Punk comes back, I think you have to start him off. You say usually, I don't mean to interrupt you, but you say usually this guy did something that had never been done before. Absolutely trashed his company, his executive vice presidents, and to some degree embarrassed his owner. Not to some degree, to a large degree. Publicly, immediately after winning the championship. No, I agree. I agree. It was terrible. It was horrible. He needed to be suspended just for what he said at the press conference alone uh, completely. But if he comes back, he I think you have to put him with Hangman and you have to lean into what happened because that's where the money is. Oh, my God. And you have to let Hangman go over like that. Like that is how you make good. That's how you make money. And that's how you make good. And that's how you get CM Punk to prove that he's a team player and he's going to do that stuff. So oh, I forgot the third we'll reference, by the way. Sorry. Uh, MJF yeah. in the uh, scrum is eating donuts. I'm oh, sorry, not eating donuts. He's eating uh, pickles. pickles. Like yes. CM Punk ate whatever he ate. Was it muffins or something? Um, Some sort of muffin. In a very similar fashion with a towel around his neck, with blood on his face. So three references pretty much in a single night. R- Ricky Starks also came out and said, so what do you guys want to talk about? Oh, uh, he did like Cody? That's fine. <laughs> yep. Yeah. So, so, um, uh, so yeah, look, I think it's probably more likely than not at this point that Punk comes back just because there's been so much about it. And, but like I said, I think if he comes back, you got to make him a heel and he's got to eat some crow. And I think there's a lot of potential if everybody can play ball. That's a huge if. I believe I said this on our pre-show, was it? Um, But there's a difference between being, you know, 24, 25 years old, like Randy Orton, and then 10, 12, 15 years later, maturing and figuring out that, you know, the way you acted and things you did we're immature and, and you need to be smarter and, and, you know, more professional and things like that. It's another thing when you're 
you know, 44 and you turn 45 and someone's expecting you to change. We, this guy's a known quantity. Um, I'll save a rant for if, and when he ultimately returns, but there will be one. I guarantee that uh, if he does return to AEW, not to end the show on that note, just thought it was worth talking about given everything that transpired on Sunday night, Chris, that is this edition of the getting over wrestling podcast. Is there anything else that you want to share before we get out of here? I don't let me pull up my notes. Was there anything else? Um, Oh, uh, Adam Cole, um, you know, we, they talked to him on the pre-show. Mm-hmm. We talked to RJ city, reiterated that he's coming back at the end of the month. Um, we'll see, but Adam, Adam Cole as a face, uh, doesn't quite do it for me. So we'll see, you know, if he gets involved with MJF or not, but, um, they've used him as like a face of the company type guy in recent years to talk about, you know, he introduced forbidden door, I think he, he talks about all access. He's going to be featured. Britt Baker is going to be featured as well. They're moving him into kind of a, almost like the Cody role, essentially. Um, it seems like, uh, but him as a face, eh, it's not quite the same for me, even though everybody loves his cheers and everything. So we will see, but more than anything, looking forward to him getting back, uh, I guess, by the end of the month. I respect that take from you, but I'm going to tell you right now, Adam Cole is going to be massively over as a baby yes. face and you will change your tune about that. He, he will, he will be, I completely agree. He will be over. I just think his promos aren't as good as a face. Uh, they're better as a heel. That's fair. Yeah, that's fair to say. All right, Chris, let's wrap up this show with a reminder of what's coming this week on the getting over wrestling podcast. We will be back Tuesday with our next WWE episode as the road to WrestleMania 39 continues on Thursday, we will have our next AEW and NXT episode. And just a little teaser for all of you out there. The Silver King will be interviewing a WWE Hall of Famer this coming week in a conversation that will be aired on the Getting Over Wrestling podcast next week. So stay tuned for that. On the way out, allow me to provide you with one more reminder that this podcast It's all about Defy. So head on over to Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Drop those five-star ratings on Apple. Leave a five-star written review. Let everyone know how much you love the show. Tell them why you listen and why they should subscribe. And perhaps mention how much you love the Ultimate Previews and Instant Analysis Podcast. Also, don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast. That's how you get to vote in our polls. You also get episode drops, news analysis highlights, and so much more. Chris, thank you for joining me. Getting Overheads, thank you all for listening. It is now time for the Silver King to sign off and leave you with just three final words. Bye for now. Thank you.